0: story of Moshe, so I wanted to spend uh, at least one session on the plagues uh, where Moshe is involved in negotiation with Paro and um, to some extent he's been uh, instructed what to say. Very specific instructions. The instructions are found instructions and a caution. Uh, They're found within this episode of the SNAP. On page 118 in this translation, actually the very bottom of 117, bottom of 117, first you're going to go to the people, they're going to believe you. Then, you're going to go to Paro. The King of Egypt. On the bottom of one seventeen in chapter three, verse number eighteen, says, <speaking in Hebrew> so go to the King of Egypt. There's a whole plan And, told, and say to him, the Lord of the of the Hebrews, Elkeo okay, Ibrahim, Nikra Aleinu, has, how do we translate, Nikra um, Aleinu, has appeared to us, okay, they just translate, manifested himself to us, whatever. Uh, and let us, therefore, let us travel, Neochanah, please let us travel a three day journey into the desert, that we can bring sacrifices to our God. And then God continues, I know that the king of Egypt is not going to let you go. Even though you make this request, he's not going to let you go. Not even if I hit him with a strong hand. It's not going to happen. Then I will send my hand, and I will spite Mitzrayim, "...with all of my wonders that I will do in their midst..." "...afterwards, he will send you." So it's not going to happen with Yod it will only happen with... all of my wonders." That's the first thing. And secondly, "...and you should know that the people will be seen as... seen favorably by the Egyptians..." when you leave you won't leave empty handed each woman puts it in terms of the women Allah, it's not clear whether means to borrow borrow means you're going to pay it back or give it back in this case it never is repaid but they will literally to request they will request from their friends and neighbors and those that dwell in their house, gold, silver, clothing. You will place them upon your children, sons and daughters, and you will empty out without them. Empty out Batsraim. The game plan is all is here, so we're all here, including a caution. The caution is that you should understand that you are not going to succeed at first and secondly that um, there's even a script what to say say to Paro in the very first verse over here that's what you say to Paro so there's a script there was a plan and a script for the whole interaction with Paro a caution don't don't be disappointed if it doesn't work at first it's not going to happen right away even if I smite him with a very heavy uh, uh, with a heavy hand it's not going to happen which I would say over here is another example where the expression is found it's found in many places means not just to outstretch out your hand obviously over here when God says I will stretch out my hand um, and I will smite Mitzrayim so the stretching out of the hand uh, has to do with some kind of aggressive act which uh, harms, endangers, uh, takes that which belongs to somebody. Okay, this is the plan. Now let's see how Moshe did with following the plan. So let's see, the first time he engages with Paro, that's found, that's found chapter 5. We didn't actually look at these verses earlier, but for whatever reason, I don't know why. But let's just take a look at a few psukim in Perakay. Then we'll jump from that very quickly to the plagues. Chapter 5, this translation, page 120. So afterwards, first they go to the people. The people believe them, as God had said they would. That's the last verse of chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, Viachabo Mosheviaron, Vayamluoparo. The first thing that's interesting is that when Moshe and Aaron go to Paro, they, they collectively speak to Paro, and they cite which is very often used in prophetic writings. Thus says the Lord. It's like a quote. But which Lord is speaking to them? ba Midbar. For whatever reason, hard to know why, Moshe has deviated from the script. That's not what God told him to say. God told him to say, Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the God of the Hebrews has chanced upon us. Eloheyo Ivriyim Nikra Aleinu. But Moshe doesn't use the name of the people, he says. He doesn't call the people, the Hebrews, Ivrayim. The name he uses is, thus says Hashem, the God of Israel. Israel. He calls the people, his people, Israel, and not the Hebrews. And God has said, um, There's a slight difference there as well, I would say. What God had told him to say was that God has chanced upon us. So we want to go with a journey into the desert for Nizbechal Hashem al Okenu. is to bring a Zebach or a sacrifice have a sacrificial meal. V'yachoguli b'amidbar, a chag to me sounds broader than simply to sacrifice. It could be that sacrifice is part of it. But ba <inaudible> b'amidbar carries with it a meaning, I think, which transcends just bringing a sacrifice, but a kind of festival. It's a festival. So that's, in other words, he seems to be requesting a pharaoh more than God told him to request on the first stage. Pharaoh's answer is instructive. Iomer Paro, Mi Hashem Hashem Eshma B'Kol Lo. Who was this Hashem? Urehevei that I should that I should obey, listen to his voice, which shall rock in Israel to send Israel out. Lo Et Hashem. I don't know this God. Vegamet Yisrael Lo Ashaleach, and furthermore, I have no intention of sending out Israel. So this is, right away we realize, I mean Moshe should realize, we certainly realize, that the person that you're dealing with is not a simple person to deal with, he's a, a tough guy, and he's a categorical no. But even before the no, I'm not sending Israel, he says something else, which is very important, lo yadati et Hashem. I never heard of this God. I never, lo yadati. question is what lo yadati means. I don't know this God. Does lo yadati mean... He actually never heard of this God. We have a list of gods in this country. We have many different gods. This is what I never heard of. He's not on the list. Is that what it means? Is all your dhati simple ignorance? He says, listen, I never heard of this. Do you want us to send the whole people out to to a festival for a god? This god is unheard of. That's one possibility. He actually doesn't never heard of it. Or maybe to rephrase the point, is not hearing something, not knowing, something. a kind of neutral term. He says, look, I I don't know this god. I have no interest in doing such a thing. Or lo yadati et Hashem, carry with it, as we read this, something negative. What do you mean you don't know? Not knowing, actually, in this case. is not simple ignorance. But it's something beyond that, which is an unwillingness to accept God, an unwillingness to be sympathetic. Maybe he knows, right? But he chooses not to know this particular God. And I think the shot, one might say, this, the plain reading of the text is actually the latter. That is, lo yadati et Hashem, carries with it a negative significance and the reason is that that's how the book begins the book begins as a new king of Egypt emerged who didn't know Joseph what does he mean he didn't know Joseph? it strikes us as virtually inconceivable that he never heard of Joseph I mean Joseph saved Egypt and apart from saving Egypt he made the Pharaoh a very wealthy man by interpreting his dreams a certain way what does it mean not to know? So loyadati, then, seems to carry with it, it's not just I know something, I don't know a fact or a non-fact, not to know, knowing is more than just knowledge. Knowing is, one might say, connectedness, empathy, and all that. Knowing is, arguably, one could make the case that the verb to know is the central word of the first two books of the Torah. It's certainly the central word of the second book of the Torah, which is Sefer Shvald. There's not a single story in the book of Exodus, not one, in which knowing or knowledge is not central. You can't think of one. It appears constantly. And in fact, in thinking about Sefer Bereshit, that's not far from the mark there either. The story of the Torah, human history begins, as it were, with the story of the Garden of Eden, which is all about the Eitz Hadat, the Tree of Knowledge. But to know doesn't mean just to know something. It means to be sympathetic or empathetic. For example, we had this earlier when uh, God is going to carry out, fulfill God's promise to save Israel. It says God is hearing the cries in chapter two when God is remembering the covenant, and God is seeing. B'ayaro Elohim and the verse ends b'yeda Elohim, and God knew. God knowing then, or, or Moses' sister stands from a distance, they are, my to know what would happen to him, so knowing it over there, just, just simply to know, she's what well, she's looking out for him. She actually cares about him, protects him. She creates this plan, presumably to save him. So loyadati et Hashem is that informational. Says I never heard about this God. He goes presumably beyond that. It's a sense of I, he doesn't want to know. He doesn't want to know because if he would know, it would impose upon him obligations. He doesn't know Joseph. Never heard of Joseph. If we remember Joseph, he, we ought to persecute Joseph's descendants. But he doesn't know. He never heard of him. So that's the law Yadati over here. One of the... Let's not forget one thing about the book of Exodus. The purpose of the Mishkan, as stated by the Torah. And the Mishkan is the end of the book. The purpose of the Mishkan, in the words of the Torah, is V'yadu k'yani Hashem, Asherot the Mishkan's purpose in chapter 29, explicitly stated by the Torah, however we understand it, is to get you to, to know that God took you out of Egypt. We mean to know? It can't mean simply the fact that God took you out of Egypt. Obviously it must, means much more than that. However the Mishkan gets you to that place of knowing that the Mishkan is the end of the book, to know God seems to be the purpose of the Mishkan. So therefore to know God is very central. And Paro says about himself, he's not not embarrassed to say it, So that's actually a very important point. Moses is up against a very tough uh, character here in his negotiation. And we'll, we'll get to what he tries to accomplish. But the first point is, Paro says to him two things. I never heard of this God. And B, And also, Certainly, also, I have no intention of sending Israel to worship this so-called God that you mentioned. That's his answer. That's a very curt response. No, no, no. It's not, not happening. So now Moshe, in the third pasuk, changes his language. It's very curious. In verse number 3, on the top of page 121, he changes the language to what God told him to say in the first place. <laughs> As is this verse number 3 is what God told him to say in the first place. For whatever reason, he deviates from the script... And that doesn't work very well. Now we go to the next verse. Interesting verse. By Yomru Nikra So they said something different, which is virtually the same as what God had said earlier. We saw this. The God of the Hebrews, Nikra Aleinu. The JPS translation says the same thing. Manifested himself. I have no idea what manifested. Nikra Aleinu uh, is curious here for the following reason I simply point out that when God speaks to Moshe earlier God said to Moshe tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt Eloheo Israel Nikra Aleinu Nikra is written in the uh, earlier verse with a He in this verse it's written with an Aleph you see the difference? It's written with an olif. Nicolenu. The question is, is there a difference? It's a very good question. Is there a difference between Nikrow with a hay and Nicaragua with an hour? Nicrowenu with a Nikrow with a hay, I mean typically we do distinguish them. They seem sometimes to be used interchangeably. But it seems there should be a distinction between Nicaragua with an olive and Nicaragua with a hay. Nicrow with a hay usually gives the sense of I would say, God met us. God chanced upon us, right? Um, when Isaac, when saw asked Yaakov, "Son, how come you back so fast with the food?" Right? Kihikra for night with the hay, because the, your God caused it to appear before me, caused it to 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 nikra. It's a sense of karad. It's more of a sense of chance. There's more of a sense of necessarily that's not planned. Now Korah with an Aleph carries with it a different set of meanings. It could, they could be used interchangeably over here that so to be Koray something or somebody typically means more than just by chance. Like the term like, like, like shame, for example, to call by name has the meaning in the Torah and beyond of Designating somebody or picking some, choosing somebody. It's not random in any sense. It doesn't didn't just happen. It's not that the Lord of Israel happened upon us. That's how we translate "nichra" with a "h." with an, an "l" doesn't sound that way. "Nichra I can't put it into precise English, but it sounds to me more than just happens. In any event. But having said all that, this is the script that Moses was handed earlier. Now we shift from the God of Israel to the God of the Hebrews. What is the difference between the God of Israel and the God of the Hebrews? What is the difference between those two? Obviously Moshe changes it. So it has significance. What's the difference, yeah? The God of the Hebrews is when we're in the Galah, and the God of Israel is when we're in the land. That could be what but why is that so? The word Israel is sometimes used even in exile as well. It is. Okay. It is. Right. That was a the good theory. But it well, it actually is a good theory because I think there's some truth to it. In other words, well, let, me, let me say this. The God of the Hebrews, Ivri, Ohio Ivriim, the word Ivri has two meanings in the Torah. Abraham was the first one to be called the Ivri, the Hebrew, the, the, the refuge, the survivor from the war of the four kings runs to Abraham told Abraham the Ivri Ivri has two different significances there Ivri on one hand the Jews are called Ivrim uh, because they are descended from someone named Aver in the the Torah's genealogies Noah has uh, three sons and um, and and one of them is Shem, he's the primary son, and Shem's great-grandson, fourth generation from Shem, is a fellow named Aver. So Abraham is descended from, from, from Aver, the, the Midrashim that we encounter in many places, have this mythical Beit Midrash called the Beit Midrash of Shem and Aver. So Aver is actually a person, and Abraham is descended, the Yavri he's descended from his what have been Aver. That's one of B'nai Aver, that's one meaning to Aver. But there's another significance to Aver, which has to do with the, the, the meaning of the word Aver. Aver, 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 Aver HaYardayim, the other side of the Jordan. So Ivry is somebody who comes from the other side. The fact of the matter is, the term... The well, we may or may not want to go back, but it's typically... Joseph is called the Ivri, The one who's primarily called an Ivri in Genesis is Joseph. Why is Joseph the Ivri? He is an exile. But the point of the word Ivri is it's the way the other sees you. In other words, Ivri typically is used... The other. Ivri is typically used in a pejorative sense, in a negative sense. In other words, Pharaoh would see the Jews as as as, as Ivrim. He sees them as Ivrim. He thinks they're a threat. He thinks they're a fifth column. They may rise up against him. Israel is another story. Israel is the name of of the people, and not just the name of the people, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, so it reflects, I would say, the essential nature of the people, maybe even the people which have a certain destiny, people of destiny. It reminds me of what Rabbi Soloveitchik has a very well-known essay, he writes about two two kinds of, two descriptions of, uh, of, of Jewish identity, when he calls faith and when he calls destiny. Very famous essay, and um, where did he write that? I think it's in called the Dido Fake. I'm not sure, but I think so. It's quite interesting. And he actually talks about this. I believe I don't remember him. But in this context, he and it, I think it's very true. In this context, in other words, the Ivri has a meaning of. I mean, he tries to take it to a slightly different place. But Ivri is used as the, 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 those from the other side. He he would say from the other side that is they don't necessarily have their own own, own identification. What identifies them is that they are, for example, persecuted by others. They're seen as different by, by, by the other side, so they become the other. Whereas Israel represents the destiny of the people. When Moses first spoke to Pharaoh, he talked about the God of Israel, their own, their own unique identity. That Pharaoh was not too happy to hear about unique identity, separate God, all this. So Pharaoh says, forget about it. Then Moses goes back to God's first prayer. He says, You have to speak to Pharaoh this way. Tell Pharaoh, the God of the Ivrim Nikrainu, Neochonah, please, I have a request, right? The first request, by the way, when Moses first spoke, Fiachogu Libamidbar, that the God of that the that the God of Israel um, uh, has spoken, send that send my people and they will party in the desert. So Pharaoh says to himself, I wonder how long this party is going to take. You know, is it a two-day party? Is it a three-day party? Maybe it's a Hachashfei a 180-day party, you know? I mean, there's no, there's, there's no limits to it. So Paro dismisses it out of hand. What do you mean, send a, go out to party in the desert for some mysterious... not happening. So here, motion changes it. The God of the Hebrews, that, that Hebrews is somebody that you recognize, oh, the right. slaves. God has a, called upon us, and God has said the following, please... He, said, right? he says, right? He says, no. He says, please. The first statement of Moses, there was no please. God has spoken. Koamar Hashem. God has spoken. Uh, but now it's please. But let us go for a three-day journey into the desert. He limits it again. Not to, not to have a Chag, a festival, which could have many different pieces to it, but rather to bring sacrifices to our God, Pen yifkaenu ba Badever o lest this God smite us with dever o cheref. So even even one might say almost apologetically, well, what choice do we have? If we don't do it, this God is a vengeful God and may smite us with dever and cheref. So notice that the second round Moshe changes his tune completely. He has a different name of the people, mm-hmm. right? The God and the God is the God of the the, the request is polite please the request is limited to sacrifices and limited in time let us travel for a three days journey into the desert take exactly how long we're going to be away and we're going to just bring a, a zevah and, and we have no choice really we, what choice do we have we, we have to do it lest we be smitten with dever and cheret. before we move further on this verse which is another interesting side to it I just want to remind all of us that This is not the first time that somebody goes to Pharaoh and makes some kind of request. There was one other request that we had from Paro. Actually, there was more than one, but Joseph has, I would say, explicitly one request and in in fact two requests from Paro. The first request from Paro, which he does in a sneaky kind of way, is to ask Paro to allow his family to live with him in the land of Goshen. Paro's not crazy about that, Yosef sends his delegation to Paro and maybe we'll come back to that because that's really the first negotiation with Paro up to that point there's no negotiations with Paro Joseph doesn't negotiate with Paro Paro tells him "Tell me my, interpret my dreams for me and when he interprets the dream Paro gives him a wife, he gives him a ring and gives him a chariot and gives him a title etc. there's no negotiation he gives him a job but the second time with the, with, but with the brothers, actually, is a bit of negotiation because Yosef wants wants something. And he thinks that Paro might not be crazy about granting that wish. What he wants is for the brothers and the family, a father, brothers, their children, to be with him, stay with him in the same place, which is the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen, there may be a place called Goshen. I don't know if it's an actual place who knows the names. But Goshen, of course, means the, Goshen. But ye gosh, they love Yehuda. Goshen means the place of closeness. He wants his family to be close to him. Paro, he thinks, might not be crazy about it, so he gives the brothers a a script. What's interesting is that there, too, there's a deviation from the script. As I'm talking, I'm thinking about this. Maybe Maybe we'll come back to that deviation from the script. But the case that's more to the point, actually, more directly related to the request here to go out three days in the desert... And bring sacrifices is the request that Joseph makes of Paro at the end of Sefer Breshit. The request was he wants to bury his father in a different place. He wants to leave the land and bury his father. And he goes to Paro with that request. That's actually very instructive for us. We take it's the last chapter of Breshit. If we take a look at that, I mean, everything's connected, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Jacob dies at the end of chapter 49, page 109. And now we have, I would say, a, a request. Okay? First, Jacob, after Jacob dies, Joseph instructs his servants and the physicians, the rofim are physicians, but the physicians here are, are actually, they're not just physicians, they embalm the dead bodies. Mm. So, lachanot et aviv, so he instructs, Jacob's body is embalmed. Okay? Now, the nature of the embalming is very interesting. Why, why is Yaakov's body embalmed? The Hebrew word is chanudich. they are chanutim. Those The embalmers are the chanutim, And there are, it would appear to me, two reasons, or two points of embalming the body of Yaakov. One is that embalming, apparently, was an Egyptian practice. And that what Joseph is saying, in effect, is my father shall receive as the father of the Viceroy of Egypt a very appropriate, proper, and respectful Egyptian burial. That's one side of it. He doesn't want to, you know, insult the Egyptians. It's also possible that embalming, we have the mummies around today, um, is a way to preserve the body and he wants the body preserved, because Yaakov has a journey to go on. He wants to take him to the land of Canaan, so that the embalming has a second point as well. And in any event, the body is embalmed for 40 days, and in verse number 3, the Egyptians mourn Yaakov for 70 days. So the death of Yaakov is a national figure. The father of Joseph, everybody is mourning for 70 days. You read a few, this is chapter 50. A few verses later it says, a new king emerged who didn't know Joseph. How could you not know Joseph? Just had a seven day mourning period for his father. Anyway, okay. In any event, so then the, the, the crying is all over, and now we have verse number four. Now we have the tricky part. Joseph spoke to Pharaoh's court, Pharaoh's house, saying, Him if I find favor in your eyes, please, he says, speak unto Pharaoh, saying, this is verse number 5, my father made me swear, behold I die, in the grave that I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, bury me there, so now, I will please go up, I will bury my father and I will return. That's Joseph's request. And Pharaoh's response is the next verse, Pharaoh says to Joseph, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Here there are some very interesting pieces about this conversation. I think it's a really important conversation for us because it really foreshadows The conversation that conversations that Moshe will have with Paro. Yes. That's the only request that he actually uses an intermediary. Yes, he does. That's a very important point. What did she say? What she said was this. That's a critical point. I was about to say it myself. What's interesting about that verse is that Joseph does not approach Paro himself. He doesn't approach Paro directly. He approaches, we are told, the servants of Paro, Avde Paro, and not just that, by the way. Three times in this little conversation he has with them, beginning in verse number four, middle of verse number four, he starts And then verse number five, my father made me swear, Three times in a verse and a half, one little word appears. The word is no. Please. Now, who is he saying please to? He's telling them to speak to Paro for him. Now you have to understand the one who's doing the talking is Joseph when the brothers appear before Joseph in Egypt and he reveals his identity he says to his brothers hurry up and bring my father down hurry 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 quick bring him down and then he said to the brothers he'll see he'll see he'll, he'll see my situation here Joseph describes his situation in Egypt as he starts with a father figure unto Pharaoh Adon, a master of his house and a ruler over the land of Egypt. Mm. And this so-called, that's how he sees himself. Back in chapter, was it 44, 45? The master of Egypt, the master, the father figure of Pharaoh, can't even speak to Pharaoh. He has to beg, Abde Paro, is this shocker, he has to beg the servants of Paro to speak to Paro for him. And notice something else about this about very interesting, which is he changes certain, he, the way he represents it to them. First, please, please, and please, three times. But, he says, he, he, he says two interesting things of it. Well, I say three interesting things. It's called negotiation. Number one, he says that my father made me swear. It's like, what can I do? My father imposed an oath on me. That's number one. An oath is something you take in God's name. We know that Joseph always represented himself to Pharaoh as a deeply religious person. I should interpret your dreams. Dreams belong to God, right? Elohim, Shalom, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh married him off, by the way, to the daughter of a high priest of Egypt. So Joseph is represented as a deeply religious person. Number two, apart from saying that my father made me swear, he says something else which is true but not true. My father wants me to bury him in the grave that he dug. in the la- There's never an intimation that he actually dug the grave. Quite the opposite. The intimation is that he's buried in the same place as his father, grandfather, mother, and grandmother. But the, you get this image over here of Jacob taking the you know, spade and digging the hole in the ground. That's uh, the second point. But the third point, which is extremely striking for us and relevant. I will return. Exactly. What? I will return. The yeshuvah. Yeah. what do you mean yeshua? What, what are you thinking basically what, what do you mean I want to just bury my father and I will return sounds to me like he's trying to he's trying to reassure yeah reassure or to, to lessen the imp- in other words you think you're going to leave no I have no intention of leaving of course I'm going to come back what can I do my father made me swear the poor old guy dug the grave himself but I'm going to come back yeshua he doesn't speak to Pharaoh he speaks he begs the slaves of Pharaoh and then Pharaoh says to Joseph go and bury your father as he made you swear so Paro is very clear about this if he made you swear you have no choice I don't like it and Joseph understands he doesn't like it now I shall return that seems to be the issue And we think about I shall return think about Moses negotiating with Paro we want to go up into the desert to have a party so, Paolo may be saying to, him, to himself, really? You want to take the, all the slaves to the desert? And how do I know they're ever going to come back? I mean, that would be Powell's thinking, right? So, it's interesting, if we look at the story of chapter 50 of, of Breshit, there's an interesting verse over here. So, Joseph goes up to bury his father. Verses 7 and 8 are extremely instructive, and verse 9 too. These three verses, when you read them in conjunction with our story of Moshe, our negotiator, and the whole story of Moshe and Paro, now you read these three verses, which appear later, of course, but they take on a different cast. They feel differently. They're, on, they're honoring him, but at the same time, you are making sure he does come back. Exactly. How does he make sure he comes back? It's exactly the point. Verse 7, 8, and 9, on one hand, they are seemingly honoring this great national hero, Yaakov, the father of Joseph, who had a, great, a wonderful Egyptian embalming, 40 days of embalming. But now when Joseph goes up to bury his father, So the servants of Paro and the elders of his house, and the elders of Egypt, they're all going together. Maybe to demonstrate this is an Egyptian thing. The Chobet and the house of Joseph, Echav Beit Aviv, his father's house, his brothers. Then there's a little statement at the end of verse number eight. Rock, however, Tapam Vitzonam Uvakaram Ozvu Goshen. But the children, right? The children and the cattle, the animals, they left behind in the land of Goshen. And why did the Torah tell us this? Actually, that they left behind the children and they left behind the cattle. To I mean, it seems superfluous, you know what I mean? not to assure the return. Right. In other words, it probably, the main reason is not to say they went up, but not, but not everybody, just the cattle were left behind. Why have mention the cattle? Why would I think the cattle would go? But the point of emphasizing the cattle stays behind with the children well, means the that in fact your, all your, your family and possessions, you can't leave. Now, I mention this because this verse finds uh, has its place within the negotiations of Moshe and Paro. You remember, and we'll get to this this week or next week, that when Moshe negotiates with Paro to serve God in the desert, so first Paro dismisses them altogether, and then gradually, as the plagues get worse, he makes certain concessions. One of the concessions, first he says, take the men and not the women. We need the women for you want to serve God, they take the men, Vareem. That's one thing he says. Then at one point he says, uh, you, you have to leave the children behind. You can take the, the older people, but the young ones have to stay behind. That doesn't work for us. right? Then eventually he says to them, you can take all the people with you, but you have to leave the cattle behind. right? Moshe says no. Each time Moshe re- refuses. It strikes me that this thing of leaving behind the children and the cattle was exactly what Powell does in the story of Yosef, and it s- strikes me that the two stories in this respect are totally the totally, uh, same. They're identical stories. In each case, Paro, the great friend of Joseph, he's the father figure to Pharaoh, doesn't want Joseph to go wants to make sure he returns. The next verse is even more stunning the horsemen and the chariots also went and the, the camp was very large, literally very heavy so you have to wonder who are they, who they they why the army has to go along is the army going along to protect Joseph to protect the people or is the army going along to make sure they come back that's the question it's clear, I think in the story that the main thrust of chapter 50 is that Joseph wants to bury his father. He senses Power won't like it. He pleads with him and Power only allows him to go if hostages are, are, are essentially left behind. The hostages take the form of the possessions, the cattle, and more importantly, the children. So you can't go any place. You have to come back. And Joseph already has said it. Let me just bury my father via Shuvah. I will return. This seems totally superfluous, but it's not superfluous at all, yes. Also, uh, uh, he's begging, and this is—you uh, mentioned that this is so unusual that Nas said three times. Right. And he doesn't go directly to Pharaoh because he's a diplomat, and he feels this is more effective. Could no, I would say not that. I no, would say he actually he's not can, he actually committed. not allowed to go to Pharaoh. You're not allowed to go to Pharaoh. He doesn't because have. Pharaoh calls he doesn't have the same he, access anymore. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't. Ha- oh, that's interesting so but also the somebody likes you sometimes you see in my business call me anytime call me anytime you know that mean that's anything. when they actually for whatever reason like you usually want something suddenly you fall in disfavor you, you, somehow the phones are they're, they're never in their office you know what I mean that's the way it works with Joseph when power wants him wants him because Joseph will make him a very wealthy man yeah. give him all the cattle give him all the right. land right. enslave Egypt Joseph's my man you know he loves Joseph. Whatever you want, Joe. You know, take, take the ring, take I don't know, take the ring, take take this, parade around Egypt. But in chapter 50, you have to remember, Joseph has given Pharaoh everything already. He has all the cattle, he has all the land, he has all the people, he has all the money. He doesn't need and therefore, he doesn't need him anymore. But he w- doesn't want him to leave. Because he's a useful man. You never know. You I'll, never give, you, I'll know. give you an example of that. A same, similar example. I mean... Not to be cynical, but there's no way not to be cynical in, about kingship and, say, for Breshid, or in the Bible in general. It's the story of Joseph in the house of Potiphar, which was his real training ground to become... Right. Here he had a great opportunity. He worked for this phenomenally wealthy guy who has a jail in his house, who has fields, has a house, has a whole operation. And Joseph ran the operation. He was the head of the business for many years, so he got all kinds of good training. And then one day there's a small problem the boss's wife accuses Joseph of trying to attack her. And the, the head of the house gets very angry. Potiphar gets very angry. His job is the chief butcher of Egypt. The chief butcher of Egypt you would expect would not be too squeamish about chopping off Joseph's head. <laughs> but strangely enough he doesn't do that. He puts him in jail. And only they put him in jail he turns him over to the head of the chief jailkeeper keeper. But a few verses later, when in his jail suddenly appeared the chief baker and the chief butler, Sarah Mashkim and Sarah Ophim, suddenly he jumps back in. He says to Joseph, I assign you to these two people. And he asks the question, why did Potiphar not execute Joseph? Because his wife strayed off often. That, That's possible. That's possible. He the story before. That's possible. Because he might need him in. The of course. Because he uses him. Yeah. He uses him. It's always, he's a businessman. Yeah. That's all. Straight business. He's value. He has a value. Now, you can't keep him in the house where the wife is. So you put him two flights down in the basement where the jail is. Okay. And maybe and he stays there forever, as far as Potiphar is concerned. But one day, two important dignitaries come into the jail. And then suddenly, Joseph is useful. He, he personally instructs Joseph, this is, your, this is your personal charge. He knows how talented Joseph is. And that's the story of Paral. And now we come to Moshe, so Moshe has to negotiate with this, with this guy. And the problem is that Moshe seemingly has no utility to Pharaoh at all. It's not like Joseph, who's a, you know... <coughs> by the way, it's interesting that the first time there's a negotiation. The first time a negotiation is when Joseph wants his family to remain in the land of Goshen. It's the first time he goes, he sends his delegation to speak to Paro. That's actually very interesting. Let's take a look at that, because that's an interesting negotiation. Many years ago, when I first started Dresha, I, I tutored one fellow, a businessman. Didn't have much background. He's actually a very interesting guy. And he got very excited about the story of... We start with Begin. He got very, very excited about Moshe and Paro. He says, because he himself was a was a, was a a business negotiator. You love that story, you know? So here we have another negotiation. The, there, there, there are three negotiations. The, the one we're going to spend a lot of time on is Moshe and Paro, but if you look at the first time that Joseph wants something from Paro, he wants the family to stay in his part of town, which is the land of Goshen, from the word of Ayyigash, the, the place of closeness or nearness. He doesn't want the family to be dispersed throughout Egypt. So the family comes down. Remember that Joseph sent wagons for the family. Remember that. The idea of sending wagons, okay, is that they can take not just the people down, but take all of their possessions down. So they're coming down to Egypt, actually, as the Torah says in our book, Shemot, Ishu Beit, Tobol. They're coming down with with their house, with their objects, with their people, and their things. That's what Joseph wants. He doesn't want them to simply be... Assimilated into the land of Egypt. That's what Joseph wants. And now he wants Pharaoh's permission to settle them near Joseph. He has to ask Pharaoh permission. The complicating factor is that when Pharaoh hears that Joseph's brothers are are have come down to Egypt, right? Joseph cries, and everybody hears it. Pharaoh. So Joseph says, come on down, come on down, I'll take care of you and all that. Where are you? This is on page 98 and 99, at the end of chapter 45. Paro hears that Joseph has brothers, he says, come on down, he says, come on down. On the bottom of page 98, right? have your, fam- have your father come with his family and come to me. And I will give you the, the good of the land of Egypt, you will eat the fat of the land. Verse 19. You are commanded to do the following Take wagons to the children, right? Power says, take wagons, and bring down your father and come. Verse number 20 is very instructive. Never mind your belongings, he says. Who? That is a verse that is very interesting. Paro says to Joseph, send the wagons, bring the family. Don't worry about where you're going to be over here. I will give you the fat of the land of Egypt. And he adds, and don't be concerned about bringing your possessions. Forget the possessions. You'll be Just come down. You'll be completely dependent right. Completely dependent and completely assimilated into, into, in, in, into Egypt. Dependency is very important. You know what I'm reminded of in reading this? My point is that from the very beginning, this is where Joseph gets in trouble, actually, with Paro. Because here, for the first time, there's a clear distinction being drawn between what Joseph wants and what Paro wants. Joseph wants his family to be near him. Joseph wants his family to preserve their identity. Preservation of a foreign identity in the land of Egypt doesn't work well for the pharaohs, or for the Egyptians in general. They don't take kindly to people who want to do their own thing. So here you have it straight up. Don't worry with the possessions. I mean, when you read this verse, you think about a very famous midrash. Very famous midrash. Eat the kosher pots beyond. A few new pots. That's what he's saying. But there's a midrash, I thought you were about to say it. It's a very famous midrash about Jacob. All these things we could spend a lot of time on, but not going to, but jacob leaves the house of Laban, right and then he's trying to he takes his family and he crosses over the, the 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 wadi to the other side but jacob is left alone everybody else crosses over the midrash asks the question tomorrow why was he alone it says he crossed over so he's on the other side then suddenly he says that but jacob was alone so how do you, he's on this side? So how, how do we understand it? So there are a variety of ways to understand it, but the midrash says the following: the midrash, not the text. Jacob had crossed over with the others, but he went back because he had forgotten something. What did he forget? His famous midrash: Pachim Katani. He had left some small vessels on the other side. He went back to get the small vessels. Pachim Katani. The question, of course, is when you read such a statement... in not the Gemara, the Midrash, very famous? The question is, what does it mean? Is it a critique of Jacob? It's a criticism? He went back, crossed back the other way to get some vessels? Or is it saying something positive about Jacob? That's an excellent question. <coughs> I would say that... Let's be positive for a moment. Now, what Jacob is saying is something very important... Which is the part of the story, which is, when you're returning to the land, you have to bring all of yourself with you. The pachit katanim could be seen as a positive, actually. Because mm-hmm. these are not just vessels. Vessels, th- things, we said there are people and there are things, that's true. People, what's important, you know, the money is secondary, money is a means to an end, that's all true. But if there are objects that we have that it transcend their value. There are things that are very dear to people, and then maybe not worth so much money. Maybe they're, you know, not new, but they carry with it a deep significance. Maybe it's a photograph of somebody. Maybe it's an object you had as a child. and Maybe something from, uh, that, you know, someone in your inner circle was very fond of or whatever. We have all kinds of memories associated with things. And the point of Yaakov is, that if we read the Midrash as a positive, so Jacob is about to return, come back to the land. He wants to bring himself fully back to the land. He doesn't want to leave them, the memories behind. So he goes back and he brings the pachim ketanim. The point over here is the story of Joseph and negotiation with Paro Is Joseph wants the family to come to come to him? Let's be together as a family. But that's what power The last thing in the world power wants is to establish your your own identity within the land of Egypt that in fact is what the new pharaoh says in the beginning of our book look at these people they're going to right they're multiplying there's so many of them right maybe they're going to join up against, against us right so the point is his concern is we better outsmart them right Menu. He, he, he suspects them that's Mitzrayim he always suspected the stranger the reason I mention this here apart from the fact that it has very stunning parallels to these negotiations to Moshe and and Paro, is that actually in the story of Joseph, if you read it carefully, I think there's something very interesting. Joseph needs permission to settle the brothers near him in Goshen. So he sends a delegation to Pharaoh. This is a very striking parallel. Before he sends his delegation to Pharaoh, he sends his his delegation of five brothers. He gives them instructions. let's let's take this the same way God gives Moses instructions now here's what Joseph said to the brothers this is on page 101 Joseph spoke to his brothers his father's house let me go up and tell Parol and I will say to Parol let me tell him that my brothers in my father's house have come to me let me do that's the first step and then he says the Torah says these people were shepherds they had always been shepherds and they had brought with them all of their cattle all their possessions they brought with them right? they didn't do what Pharaoh said for us to leave your possessions behind they didn't do that now now Joseph speaks again. He's talking to the brothers. Now listen, here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh will call out to you and say, "Mama means, what is your occupation? What do you do for a living? What do you do? He's going to answer that question. You will say, Answer the following. We are shepherds and we've always been shepherds. We only know one trade. We're shepherds, our ancestors were shepherds. And then Joseph says, will be at Goshen. And this way, to put you in the land of Goshen, the Egyptians don't like shepherds. So this is the whole game plan. I don't know if any of you have had that I've had that situation in my life more than once where you want to meet somebody. I want to meet with somebody ask whatever someone has to set it up for you so the person says here's what's going to happen I'm going to set it up I'll, I'll call him you go here's how the conversation is going to proceed and this is what you've got to say and that's exactly what Joseph says i have got to Paro well, let me talk to parole first he says I'll fix it all with parole. And then it's going to go through the forms he's going, to ask, he's going to ask you at what point what do you do for a living we've always been shepherds and then he's going to say, Bavur in order that hey, Shrubi, it doesn't sound when you read it that that's what they're saying they said, you're saying this for the purpose of living in the land of Goshen. That's what Joseph says is going to happen. Now, let's see what happens. So, the um, chapter 47. Joseph came and spoke to Pharaoh. He says, my father, brother, and all of their possessions have come from Kadan. For he Goshen, they're already in the land of Goshen, he said. So it makes it even easier. They're in Goshen. Where are they now? They're in Goshen. All Paro has to say now is, okay, in Goshen already, let them stay there. That's all. It's easier than saying they've come, they're waiting at the train station, where should they go? This way they're already in Goshen, so the default is stay where you are. Okay. And Joseph then, in the second verse, chooses five brothers. He stands them before Paro. So, so far, so good. Exactly right. So far, so beautiful. Now we have verse number three. <laughs> exactly he says what do you do for a living what's your occupation and they said we are shepherds we are shepherds and our ancestors are shepherds now what's supposed to happen next what's supposed to happen next is Paro is supposed to say to them oh you're shepherds and you're in Goshen that's a good place for shepherds stay, stay, stay in Goshen That was the plan. Lo and behold, the next verse is very stunning. next verse is, Vayimru'el-Paro, they said unto Pharaoh. Here we have a general rule. Why does it say Vayimru'el-Paro? They're they're doing the talking, right? Mm. Why would the verse introduce it by saying Vayimru'el-Paro, the previous verse is Vayimru'el-Paro. We have this in the Bible many times. There's some Israel who wrote uh, a, I don't remember who it is, wrote a whole study of this he claims 12 different reasons for this kind of form I don't know if there are 12 reasons 8 reasons or 6 reasons <laughs> it's probably more than one but typically it's the following the main reason is the following The Nehemiah points this out in one place as well it, it, it's self-evident when you read the Chumash but when, it, when, when, when I'm talking it says Vayomer David or something like that and then I stop and I'm talking to somebody else and the next pasuk starts Vayomer David it often means that an answer was anticipated but was not forthcoming. So in other words, over here, this, an answer to my question. In this case, I say, The brothers are speaking. Paro says, What do you do for a living? They said unto Pharaoh, We are shepherds, always been that way. What you expect, according to the script that Joseph laid out for them, is Paro says to them Paro, stay in the land of Goshen. But the next verse doesn't say Paro." It says al Paro." Once again, they're talking. So why does the Torah introduce them a second time? Because you expe- there's a silence. The way for power to say something, he says nothing. He makes them speak, and what does he make them say? Kien He makes them spell it out. Listen, they said. We've come to live in the land temporarily, Lagur. We're coming temporarily because there's no uh, grazing ground back in Canaan of the famine because it's a heavy famine. And now, therefore, Yeshu no, please, they beg him, please let us stay in the land of Goshen. That was not the script. He was supposed to make the offer. He doesn't make the offer. He makes them request it explicitly. And the next verse, you would expect to say, So Pharaoh said to the brothers, okay, you can stay in the land of Goshen. But that's not what it says. The next verse says, Pharaoh spoke unto Joseph saying, Your father and your brother have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Put them in the best of places. Let them stay in the land of Goshen by the way if you happen to know that there are amongst them men of valor the verse is extremely instructive if you actually take time to think about it and read it many people just read it without thinking if you think about it what Paul is actually saying what he's saying is first of all he makes them beg that wasn't the script he makes them actually ask please let us stay in Goshen and then, he doesn't respond to them at all. He doesn't bother speaking to them. He speaks to Joseph. Your father and your brothers have come to you. That, I think, is a criticism. Not what I said. I had said in the next... The land of Egypt is before you. Don't, don't bring your stuff with you. That's what I told you. I told you assimilate into Mitzrayim. But no, no, no. They've come unto you. Okay. They can stay in Goshen. I'll let them do that. Oh, by the way, if you happen to know that any of them have abilities... Maybe they can go to work for me. So in other words, the point is, I'm doing you a big favor. I expect some kind of return. Maybe you can help me out. But this is a favor I do you, and I don't like it, he says. That's what he's saying. I don't like this thing. I don't want them being near you. Bad idea. I want them assimilated into Egypt. And I made that offer, he says. You have chosen to refuse my offer. Mm. That's all. Now, Joseph, this is only beginning of chapter 47. The rest of chapter 47 describes how Joseph makes pharaoh rich. He gives him all the money, all the cattle, and all the land. So Pharaoh's displeasure with Joseph has no immediate, uh, it it doesn't realize itself in anything, because although he's unhappy with Joseph, and there's a real disagreement over here, but he still has a use for Joseph. So in this negotiation, when they beg him, he says, okay, you can do it, no No problem. But, you, but you, you doing, you, I'm doing you a favor, he says. I'm doing you a favor. But later in chapter 50, in that negotiation, Joseph has nothing except his talent. But he's, that, he's already given Paro everything. So in that case, he can't even speak to Paro altogether. There he has to beg the, the slaves. I want to get a sense. If you ask what is the larger point over here, there are two important points. One is, now we'll look at Moshe and Paro, and we'll look at the negotiation from this context, well, I want to make a different point about the Chumash. The way the Chumash works is you have, you, have, you have certain characters who are... I mean, Paro is actually a very interesting character. But it would, would be a grave mistake, in my view, to think that in the Chumash there were good pharaohs and bad pharaohs. There's no such thing as a good pharaoh. They're all exactly the same. The only thing that ever changes with Paro are the circumstances. Does he need you, or doesn't he need you? Does he see you as a threat, or not? There is absolutely no difference, I argue, between the paro of Joseph, the nice old paro, and the paro of Moshe, the bad paro. There are exactly two peas in the pod. They're exactly the same. The difference is that the first guy has some use for Joseph. As long as he has a use for Joseph, Joseph is not endangered. And the moment he has no use for Joseph... Joseph is, as Joseph himself says at the end of the state of essentially the first slave. I realize now in retrospect I was the first slave. And yes, Joseph cannot escape. He can't get out. He dies unlike his father who was the last Jew out of Egypt. Joseph has died and he's embalmed and buried in Mitzrayim and um, he can't get out. He has to someday, says Joseph, God will save us. That's actually a very important point as we proceed to the negotiation with Paro. So let's get back to our negotiation with Paro. Here, again, deviation from the script is extremely interesting. So now Moshe softens his request. There's something else about this verse. I wrote about it in the Haggadah. In my commentary on the Haggadah, in verse number 3. So the commentaries are struck by what it says at the end of verse 3. Back to our verse on page 121, chapter 5 of Shnot, that's the book we're supposed to be studying, right? But it's all connected, what can we do? <laughs> Pen yifka'enu badever. what badever. God wants us to bring sacrifices to this God, the God of the, Hebrew, of the Hebrews, lest he smite us. Penyifka'enu badever o bacherev. So he's saying to Paro, he's making an excuse, Well, what choice do we have? This God is vengeful. If we don't bring sacrifices to him, he's going to kill us, either by dever, with, with plague, or with sword. So some of the mafarshim understand this. I think it's the pshat to be in one form or another a way of saying a way of threatening power. In other words, we have a very vengeful god. He's a very hateful god, and he gets a very bad temper. And uh, if we don't do his bidding, he's going to. He might destroy us. For yifgaenil, he will encounter us in a negative way with dever ocheriv. Is a way of saying, I and mean, if you're paro, if you're paro, you're saying to yourself, geez, if the if the Jewish people want to serve him and they can't do it, and he's gonna smite them with plague or sword, I wonder how he feels about the one who doesn't let them go. One who doesn't let them go, obviously, by implication, would be subject to at least the same punishment. Now, what is the punishment Moshe holds out in this verse? It's a very interesting. Dever and cherev. Dever is plague, cherev is sword. Cherev what's interesting is that this verse I argued is an introduction one of the introductions to the uh, to the to the ten plagues because what are the ten plagues actually there are ten of them in the, in the, in the Torah there are ten plagues in the in the, the Psalms Sarnah claimed the seven plagues actually in two different Psalms I have a small dispute with him in, in the Haggadah fundamentally I agree with them. I claim one place is seven one place is eight for other reasons it doesn't matter the point is they're not ten and which ones are missing in the Haggadah if you have it you see it's interesting but it isn't so how do you divide the ten plagues that's the question so in the Haggadah I I mentioned three different ways to divide them the most straightforward way to divide them in the Chumash three three and three plus one that is obviously a way to divide the plagues we'll see this probably next week that's a simple way to divide the plagues another way to divide the plagues is two, 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 and two I also was interesting. And he there's still another way to divide the plagues, five and five. If you divide them five and five, which is a, all three are true, all three ways of division are true, without one to the exclusion of the others. What is the fifth plague? What is the fifth plague? Dam, Fadea, Kinim, Arov, Dever. Dever is the fifth plague. Dever is the plague that kills in the Chumash, the devil is directed against the cattle. It's a killing it's the, the death of the cattle. Kherev, if we think about sword, there was no actual sword, but if we consider that uh, killing of the firstborn would become under cherev. And they're actually however they were killed is not clear, it could well be also a plague. But there the killing of the firstborn, the firstborn humans died, also the animals. So if you think about the plagues, the divide them into two groups, five and five, is a very good way to divide them. The first five culminates in the killing of the animals, and the second five culminates in the killing of humans and animals. So, pen by ka'enu ba'devr o ba cherev we better serve God, you better say the Powell, we're very concerned about this. If we don't serve God, God will smite us with devr and cherev, is of course, I would say, kind of implicit threat to power because obviously, if, if God would kill us for not bringing the sacrifices, I think God would, 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 would feel about the person who f- prevents us from going. exactly is what's going to happen. but It's interesting that, in a way, it's a veiled reference to what God had said to Moses on the way down to Egypt. Tell power, if he doesn't listen to me, I'm going to kill his firstborn. And that, I think, is already hinted at over here the possibility that not, non-compliance will result in death it's implicit in this, in this pasuk it's said politely us but it's clear to power what that us is it's not just us it might be you as well so what's Paro's response? <laughs> the king of Egypt said to him Roma moshe vi'aron ta'fri'u eto'ami ma'asav ta'fri'u why he says to Moses, he says, Why do you two, tafriyu et amima means to disturb, even in modern Hebrew, mm-hmm. to disturb. But there probably is a play on the word l'afriya l'afriya is a play on a very important word in the story, paro. So, Loma moshevi aron tafriu we could translate it means literally what are you making trouble what are you disturbing them the people are working we want to they have a work schedule what do you want to disturb their labors go go to your own go to your own labors but it, the subtext is why would you Moses and Aaron you, you you want to dictate what to do do you think that you are Pharaoh only one person here gives the rules it's not this God of Israel I don't know who, who it is and it's certainly not Moses and Aaron Moshevi Go into your into your labors. That's the first thing Paro says. Then Paro says a second thing. <laughs> Paro said unto Moses, there are so many of them. There are so many Jews. <laughs> you would cause them to cease from their labors. That's actually a very instructive verse. The Hishbatem, Shabbat is to cease. The Hishbatem is to cause them to cease. But of course the word that's connected to the word Shabbat, Tashbitu, is the word Shabbat. He says, what do you think, he says, we're going to give you days off? You want to go travel into the desert, a three-day journey. Imagine, a three-day journey into the desert, you got your sacrifices, it takes at least a day. And then you come back for three days, you lose a whole week. You think I can afford that? It's not, about, it's not about one guy not showing up at work. There are so many of you. So many of you is the reason that Paro sets in this, on his course. Right? rabbi Yatsumi Would you cause them to stop working? I would say, would you cause them to have a Shabbat? So what Paro is opposed to, when you work for Pharaoh, there's no Sabbath. And actually, this is actually a very important point in terms of the whole negotiation. Paro is opposed to Shabbat. Now, why is he opposed to giving them a break? What's interesting about the story, it's very important to get into the head of Paro, to understand what he's thinking. It's, you would say to yourself, if I have a, if I have a business, you know, so I, I produce whatever I produce, I don't know, it doesn't matter what. And I have a lot of workers. If they all take off for a week. I won't be able to produce. I, I, I make computers, okay? Can you imagine giving my workers off for a whole week, or no one's working. I could produce ten thousand computers in that time. Could have sold them. I can't afford to take that kind of a loss. I'm a businessman. I want to make money. So that's. But that apparently is not what Paro was thinking. It's clear from the story that Paro doesn't actually care about the work. It's clear from the very next story, Paro instructs his taskmasters to take away the straw from the juice. He says, "Take away the straw." and have them produce the same number of bricks that they produced earlier. Now obviously, that's not, not going to be possible. They can't produce the same number of bricks, because you've got to go forage around to find the raw materials. You're not given the raw materials. So when they can't produce the same number of bricks, the Jewish taskmasters are beaten up. They, get, because they have to take responsibility for the fact that the quota has not been filled. From that, we learn a very important lesson about power. a very critical lesson about Paro. Paro doesn't actually care about the work. In other words, if he actually cared about the work, he could have said the following: "Moses, you Jews are producing 20 bricks an hour, and I see you're very lazy. From now on, it's 30 bricks an hour. That's what I would have said if I were Paro. So you got to work harder. You want to, you want to, you want to take, you want vacations. I don't give you vacations. 30 bricks, not 20. But that's not what Paro says." He doesn't say 30, not 20. He says, twi- produce 20 without the, without the raw materials. you got to fill the quota. But of course they can not fill the quota, and they get beaten up. Therefore, what you see is that the actual production of the work is not what he cares about. So what does he care about, actually? Why is he having them work so hard building all these store cities, as he does in Chapter 1 over here as well? Yeah? First of all, it reminds me of this show, of which is just... Okay. So what is the reason, though? I agree, people but what is what is it? Our people will work to death, uh, and were and that was the deliberate plan. And here it's just authority. He wants to exert his authority.
1: In other words, it's not
0: work. It's a work basically to it's to it's to it's to break their spirit, it's to break them down, it's to um, I would say possibly even from a psychological standpoint. I think actually here the psychological interpretation is is valid. What Pharaoh does not want is to give them Shabbat. Shabbat is out. Because the moment you have a Sabbath, this is true, the moment you actually stop doing something, let's say you work at a job for many years, and you go to work every day, you get up, you go to work, you come back, and then something happens, and for whatever reason, for a whole month you can't go to work. And you're sitting at home, and you begin to think to yourself, thoughts like, this job that I've been doing for the last 20 years, thinks, right, maybe it's not for me, maybe, what am I really doing? Why am I doing this? Maybe there are other opportunities. That's what happens when you get time off. And that's actually what happened in the land of Egypt. it came to pass, after these many years, the king of Egypt died, and the people cried out to God from their labors, and the cries ascended to heaven. It's chapter 2. The cries ascend to heaven when the king of Egypt dies, and there's a respite. That's what it says. When there's a respite, when you stop, then you begin to wonder... Maybe what we're doing makes no sense. Maybe it's horrible that we're slaves and never get a day off. So the point of Paro is, the Shabbat is not something he's anxious to give them. In fact, he makes it clear, when you work for the Pharaoh, there can't be any breaks, because the moment you have a break of any type, you might begin to think. And the moment you begin to think, you might say to yourself, why are we slaves? This makes no sense. By the way, the slavery they're doing, obviously, from Paro's perspective is completely and totally, in this chapter, meaningless work. Because he doesn't actually care about how many bricks they produce. He couldn't care less. If he cared, he would have them produce more bricks, not fewer bricks. His, his decree makes them produce fewer bricks. I, I say this because it's important when we're studying the story of Moshe and what he's, he's negotiating. It's always very important to understand what are you trying to accomplish. That's one, that's one of the core questions over here. What is Moshe's goal in this negotiation? One goal, obviously, is to get them out of Egypt, but he apparently has other goals besides that, and the way the Torah sets it up is by telling us something about power. It's not an accident, by the way, that in the book of Shemot, at the end of the book, about a third of the book at least, is dedicated to building this, uh, the, the, the Mishkan. The Torah gives us all the instructions of the Mishkan over six chapters, and when they build the Mishkan, it's almost word for word repeated. You yeah, have about t- at least twelve chapters in this book, which direct out of forty, which directly deal with the Mishkan, and it's probably a little more. It's also the end of the book, and the Chumash, when it gets to the Mishkan, says many many interesting things, and one of them is this: it connects the Mishkan twice to the to the observance of the of the of the Shabbat. The Mishkan is is your, is your work, is your labor, and the Torah ties in work when you're working for God. There's a built-in Sabbath that's actually very important and in conjunction with the built-in Sabbath the Torah says something else about the Mishkan Mulechet Machshevet the Torah calls it meaningful or purposeful or thoughtful labor so the point is you're trying to free the people over here but it's not just freeing them from Pharaoh you want them to you want to inculcate in them a sense of their own possibilities a sense of their own identities and enable them to grow all of this is not possible when you work for Paro because you can't even think for one second. So that's that's the point I want to make. Now we you want to say something? Uh, no, I just thought you know you know if you ask something from Pharaoh, he's going to try to break your spirit even more. Right. So, mm. That becomes clear in the story over here. He's a tough guy to deal with, which makes the story very interesting. I mean, he's, you're negotiating with a He's right because he's not just going to be. He's not to, he doesn't just say no, actually. The point is, he's proactive. He sees, in, he sees in Moshe, he says it pretty much straight out, he sees a threat in these people who dare to question him. The very fact that you dare to question, and that Moses killing the Egyptian was a very important thing. The fact that he actually did something. The slaves are, are you're, a slave is educated to be passive. You follow the rules. Kind of laid down by those that abuse you. But that's, you follow the rules. So the fact that Moshe rose up and killed the Egyptian is not just about killing one Egyptian, it's from Paro's perspective, no doubt, an act against the whole institution of slavery. And over here, Loma Moshevi Aaron Tafriu et Um, which is the play on Paro, he sees in Moshe and Aaron, and very correctly so, a, a, a very great danger. That Moshe and Aaron are different from the other leadership of the Jewish people. I wanted to make one last point about the difference between Moses and Aaron's leadership and the leadership of the Jews, and then next week we'll start with the plagues. But you have, and we don't, know, we don't know Next story. week, are we meeting next week as presidents? Yeah, we are, we are meeting. We are meeting next week. Right? Yeah, I okay. mean next week, right? Just Sunday, though. Just, uh, just Sunday, but uh, the rest of the week we're meeting. Now, later in, in the story, we we know what Power did. He takes away the straw. He takes away the straw, the Jews can't meet the quota, and the leaders of the Jewish people that are the taskmasters, whatever you want to call them, they get beaten up. So what do they do? They get beaten up. And the Torah tells us two things that happen after they get beaten up because they can't produce the quota. The first thing is that the, the, they call the Shul The officers of the Israelites appear unto Pharaoh. It's on the bottom of page 121 they cried out to Pharaoh why do you do this why do you behave this way to your servants your slaves don't get straw but you tell us to make the bricks and your servants we are being beaten but your people are the one responsible actually it's Pharaoh responsible they don't want to say Pharaoh So they're pleading with Pharaoh, what is this? We are, they call themselves three times, we are your servants, why do you beat us up? What what did we do wrong? We're good servants, we're good slaves, we do the work. So Pharaoh said, no, you're lazy. Right. That's why you're saying, let us go serve, bring sacrifices to God. Now go and work. And you're going to, he repeats the same thing. Same quota. So what is what is the response of this of the suffering servants, the suffering slaves? What do they do? They go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the guy who's beating them up. You understand? They're going to the one who's beating them up unfairly, and they're saying to him on three different. It's all the same thing. We are abodeecha. We are slaves. What do we do wrong? Oh no, he says you're lazy. That's why, because you that's why you want to go bring sacrifices to your god. The point of Pharaoh was something else, a very important point for the negotiation. What he wants to do is to create separations between the Jews. Separations between the workers and their taskmasters who get beaten up. Separation between Moses and Aaron on one hand and the people and the, and the people's own leadership on the other. So he's a very clever man. In doing this, That now they can blame Moses, which is what they do. They blame Moshe for, for, their, for their problems instead of actually blaming the one who's responsible which is Paro they're going to say to Moshe what are you doing you're giving this guy an excuse to kill us right so they but they the people the the people they approach Paro the Shotrim Moshe Moshe speaks to God verse 22 verse 22 Moshe said to God, Why? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, amaze. He has done evil to this people. And you didn't save them. And Moses' words are very striking actually. Why did you do evil to the people? What he says to God is, Think, ever since you sent me things have gotten worse Pharaoh's a wicked man who does evil and I must say with all due respect O oh God I hold you responsible because you're sending me that caused them to do evil and you didn't step in and save them if you didn't step in and save them you must therefore you have to be held accountable you have to remember Moshe is a man who on three separate occasions there was no business of his own steps in to save somebody Hatzel Ovi He's not a person who's talk, idly talking. He's a person who has, on three separate occasions, when he sees two, someone in trouble, whether it's Yitro's daughters or whether it's the two Jews that are fighting, whether the Jew and the Egyptian, he jumps in to save. Ish mitzvi He saves. He gets involved. So Moshe now turns to God and says, You didn't save them. Therefore, if you didn't save them, I hold you equally responsible as Pharaoh. He, he is He-Ra and you are Hariota. But my point is something else, which is, to whom do you address the... the, the Moses doesn't go back to Pharaoh and say, what is this? this? is not right. He's not interested. I mean, Pharaoh wouldn't give him an audience in any event, but that's not the point. Moshe knows to whom you go. You don't go to the Pharaoh. That's crazy. You're going to the abused child, goes to the, the abuser and toss him. That's crazy. you got to go to God, because God's the one... the only one who can actually redress the problem is God and Moshe is very direct about this with the questions the, the, the Israelites say to Pharaoh why do you do this to your servants they see Pharaoh as, 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 the, as the leader they see the Jews as Pharaoh's servants but the whole point of the story Moses has his work cut out for him in God's words is send my people they will serve me these are my servants they're not Pharaoh's servants so Moses has it right in that respect he goes back to God and complains because God has an answer but Moshe addresses his problems to the right source the people see themselves as Pharaoh's servants that's part of Moshe's great problem Moshe has to get the people to understand they're not actually Pharaoh's servants they're actually in God's word they're the servants of God so how he has his task uh, it's not easy So next week we'll start with how motion negotiates with power. It should be interesting.